Good morning, beloved. It's an expensive time of year, eh? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Inflation, 8%. I mean, man, who's excited for all this gift buying? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we're all feeling the hurt. And um, so trying to cut costs where we can. Um, I have a truck that is bigger than I would like, but needed something big enough to pull our the red dragon, as we call it, the big, big red trailer outside. Um, and a little boat that we, we like to fish in. And so um, got this big truck, and you know, the problem with trucks is gas. Um, and it costs a fortune to fill that thing up. So for a long time now, I've been looking for ways that I can minimize the amount of gas that I have to put in that thing. And so one of my thoughts was an electric scooter. I could like commute on an electric scooter. And some of you are already smiling. That's okay, that's okay. Um, but I told friends about that, and um, it was this kind of whole thing. It was like, to get one that would actually drive me the three and a half miles from home to the office, like, it, it needs to be, like, a certain dollar amount. So it just doesn't make sense. Like, I'm going to spend that much on that or in gas. So I'm just kind of waiting for the right moment. But a good friend of mine um, really blessed us. He, he had a friend who was leaving the country and had a scooter. And so, lo and behold, I get this scooter. Um, and so I've been commuting most days to work on a scooter. It's and it's not hilarious. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing, like, as I'm driving down the trail, because my neighborhood touches the trail and the trail goes all the way into downtown, and so as I'm riding the trail, especially the first few times, I just was really conscious of the fact that people would smile a lot more than usual as I'm walking or riding my bike on the trail. And it's not like a normal just like, hey, nice to see you smile. It's like kind of like condescending, like, look at you on that scooter <laughs> with your backpack and your dress clothes and your vest, and like all this, it's just... Um, like it's really condescending smile that they give me and um, I was really bothered by that the first few times but then I just learned to own it and so I'll throw in an extra kick even though it's electric and just kind of flourish <laughs> but I want to tell them I want to like scream out or wear a sign or something that says I've saved x dollars in gas in the last four months now so have that you know um, but you know that's that's just pointing to the reality that like we all live in this constant tension of the pecking order you know like, who's on top? And so it makes us so uncomfortable to, to feel like the, the insecurity of someone looking down on you. Um, it just bothers us. We don't like that. We like, to, we like to be on top. It's really difficult for us to submit to someone else or to think that someone is ruling over us um, to not be on top. And in fact, like, I've even watched this recently in the, in the world of nonprofits, like churches and schools and different things, um, people trying to serve people in a nonprofit. That's why it's called a nonprofit. Like, you're not in it for profit. And yet, as you're trying to serve people, we would all say there are not enough people endeavoring to meet the needs of our community. And yet, you can watch nonprofits even in this weird competition of how can we acquire more resources. And it gets to the point where sometimes you watch people celebrate the downfall of others. And it's just so sad to watch that and to think like, we all want to stand tall, right? We all want to be seen as like, wow, that's admirable. I look up to you. And sometimes if we just cannot stand tall enough and be just admirable on our own, then we kind of resort to this idea of, well, if I can't stand tall and stand out, then I just wish everyone around me would fall. And then I'm left standing tall. Again, it's just this sad reality that we so often are uncomfortable being under someone else. And Paul is actually addressing this still, and we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. We only have one week after this left um, before we move into more Christmas stuff. But um, he's been talking about how the gospel is the good news that God loves us and has saved us in grace. It's by grace through faith we have been saved, not of works, none of us can boast. It's the gift of God. 
And so God has saved us by sending God the Son, Jesus Christ, who was born. This is what we're celebrating this Advent season, that Jesus has come. He came as a baby. He lived a sinless life that you and I could not live. And that made him the perfect candidate, the perfect sacrifice, so that he would take our sins on himself, be nailed to a cross, and die in our place. So that we would not die that death. We would not be forsaken because he was forsaken. We would not face the wrath of God because the wrath of God was poured out on God himself. He took our place. He took our punishment. And he offers us forgiveness saying, just turn from your sin, confess to be a sinner, confess him to be Lord, trust in him, believe that he died and he rose again from the grave because on the third day he came back to life showing he's victorious over sin and death. Nothing can stop him. And he's called the first fruits of all who would follow, like the first fruit literally from the ground after a long winter in the spring. Something blossoms to life from death. And he's the first and we are going to follow. And there's gonna be this beautiful garden springing up. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And he says, because that is good news, that God does this for you. All you do is believe this. You confess this. He has done the work. But now there's a way that you ought to live in light of that good news. That if he has truly changed you, then we will see change. He said, you're his workmanship. He says this in chapter two, created in Christ Jesus for these good works that he prepared for us to walk in advance. He has planned for us to do good things. And so in light of the gospel, we now do these good things. And so we're in that portion of the letter where he's saying, this is what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. And so last week we covered marriage and that can create a lot of tension for us. This idea of the wife is to submit to her husband, but what that looks like in submitting to a husband who would lead her by laying down his life, loving her like Christ loved the church. And now we're gonna move on. So if you will turn in your copy of scripture to Ephesians chapter six, we're gonna start with the first verse. Ephesians chapter six, as we continue this idea of how the way we relate to others, um, whether from a place of submission or authority, is going to say a lot about us. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, read with me. Children, who are we addressing? Children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. So in light of the gospel, children, I know we just sent them out, and you're like, oh, I should have brought them back in, yeah. Why did I send them out? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I mean, if, if ever, parents, there is a verse to memorize. <laughs> there you go. No. But let's, let's actually see, what is this saying? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So we're addressing children. Again, continuing the theme we began last week of how we're to walk wisely in light of the gospel, how we're relating to others. Last week, husband and wives, now children. Obey your parents in the Lord. What does it mean to obey your parents in the Lord? Like it was wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Similarly here, we see guardrails. Let's make this safe. Children, obey your parents in the Lord means submitting or obeying your parents is part of submitting to and obeying Christ himself. For you, even adult children, so to speak, still called to honor your mother and father. How do you do this? How do you obey them? That is actually part of your worship to God himself is the way that you would submit to someone who's been placed in authority over you. And that's a big deal. So obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, because this is right, he says. Well, that's circular reasoning, isn't it? And, and don't we love to do that as parents? Because I said so. <laughs> but why, daddy? Because I said so. And, and then there's a time and a place where that's actually okay. 
of this idea of circular reasoning, if you are the highest authority over somebody, then it's okay for it to be circular reasoning. That's like some people question the, the authority of Scripture. They're like, how do we know that this is the highest authority? Largely because it does not appeal to any other authority. And think, well, that's circular reasoning. But circular reasoning logically is necessitated because if there was a higher authority, it would not be the highest authority. So it can only appeal to its own authority. This is why God would make oaths and vows to himself. That there is nothing higher. And so here we have children, obey your parents because it is as to the Lord. We are rightly to obey because he is the Lord and there is no one higher. The, the essence of him being Lord is that he is above all. And so it is right for us to obey our children as to the Lord because Jesus is the Lord and we should absolutely give him full allegiance, full obedience. And so if he says it is right, we should do that. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop with, because I said so. He then gives other reasoning. It's because it's right, he's the Lord, but it's also because it's logical when you see the promise that's coupled with it. That, that your days may be long. That it may go well for you. And so you have this idea of because it is right and because it benefits you. Because it is right and because it benefits you. So we'll start with because it is right. Parents, we need to know this as your children submit to you and obey you, as you lead them in that as an authority over them, do you realize that you have the first position, the primary position, and some would argue the most influential position in your child's life of shaping what their view of God will be? Like right now, beloved kids meeting in there, in those two classrooms, the classrooms across campus, they're going to spend about 45 minutes to an hour with teachers who love them dearly and want them desperately to know that they are loved by a God who is full of mercy and grace. They want them to know Jesus personally, to live a life that honors them. But do you really think that our 60 minutes a week is going to have near the impact that you have when you live with them? Absolutely not. And so so much of what we want to do is just resource you, to give you conversations. We start a conversation on Sunday that we hope you take throughout the week. This is going back to the Shema in Deuteronomy. When, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And, and then they start to unpack that you're supposed to talk about these things when you rise up and when you walk along the roadway. Or in today's vernacular, when you get up and you're frantically making breakfast because you've got to go to school. And, and then as you're driving them and you're sitting in the parking lot or you, you're in the car loop and you know how that goes. And you're like, we were so frantic to get here. And now we wait for 20 minutes. Stop. Stop. But what are you doing in those moments? Are you making use of those moments? to point them to the Lord because you shape their view of God unlike anyone else. And so adults, you, you may hear that and you may think, well, my parents did a fantastic job and that might be true or that might be sarcasm and because all of our parents are humans like us and they failed in many ways. And so we have to be honest about, and, and counseling, it's, it's called your family of origin. Like, what are the things that really shaped you about the dynamics in the home you grew up in your family of origin has a huge impact on the way that you view the world, the way that you interact with others. So much of who you are is shaped by the family that you came from. And so we should look at that and accept that, see what is true there, be cognizant of that and knowing how we relate to others and all that stuff. But then you also have to go back to the beginning of this letter and remember the hope that is there. That in one of the things that Paul says is true about us in the first 14 verses as he's unpacking, this is our identity in Christ. He says we are adopted sons. 
These chosen adopted sons, having been predestined before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. And so yes, your family of origin, your biological parents, or your adopted parents, whoever raised you, they have a huge impact on who you are today. But you're also adopted into a new family where you have a heavenly father, and that shapes you more than anything. And so we listen to him. So children, obey your parents first because it is right. Here's the basis for this. But then also the the additional reasoning there, that it actually benefits you. It benefits you. You see the logic of this, that there's a promise with it. Um, he's, he's actually quoting, it's, it's bold or it's in um, italics or in quotation marks in your copy of scripture, that he's pulling in something directly from the Old Testament. In fact, you actually get this from the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, that this made it into the top ten, which is really going to summarize the unpacking of the rest of the law, that you're to honor your father and mother. And there's that promise tied with it, that it will go well for you, that you'll, your days will be long in the land, You'll have an extended life. This is crazy, but hear this. Um, This is where it's kind of repeated in Proverbs chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. And so I know that the book of Proverbs are these Proverbs that are principles. They are not promises. And so we we have to read that carefully and and understand how we're reading that literary genre. If you just think everything that it says in Proverbs means it's exactly going to correlate one-to-one in real life, then you've missed that it's a wisdom principle, not a promise. Um, but this is what it says in Proverbs 9, 10, and 11. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be many, and your years will be added to your life. Now, what he's saying there is generally, it is true that if parents do their job, and what is a parent's job? To love and nurture their child. If you do your job, and your child responds to it, it is generally going to result in your child's well-being and safety, increasing their life. And what do you do? I remember going home from the hospital with my firstborn and just thinking, this is crazy. They're letting me out of here with this life. Like, you obviously have no idea what you're doing. But I like to think, like, that child is utterly dependent on you for life. Like, they will not live if you do not care for them. So if that child, as that child grows, realizes this is the person who like, I actually owe my life to, not just because they brought me into the world, but they kept me in the world. Like, they have my well-being at heart. Then it makes sense that it will go well for them. They will learn to live and navigate this life in wisdom. There are obviously exceptions, but the truth stands. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want you to tuck that into your mind for a moment. We're going to come back to it. The fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. Now look at verse four. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, and when we hear that, we recall last week and, and understand this in context. Father, um, you were the head of the family. You were called on for leadership. And, and this, is, this is a beautiful mutual submission, and yet functionally there is a delineation of authority that the father is to be the head of the home. You were to lead. And so also pull into here, fathers, that also means mothers, but knowing that fathers, you are to lead. So parents, this is what you do. Don't stir up anger in your children. We start with that. Don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So what is the goal? What is your goal for your child? What is the goal for any parent that wants to walk in wisdom and be full of the Spirit, as Paul started the section with? 
In light of the gospel, your goal as a parent is to raise up that child, train them in wisdom and instruction of the Lord. To know the Lord. There's, what is the goal? The goal is not a scholarship for your child. The goal is not just a number of trophies in the display case. The goal is not that they would have an impressive resume, that they would provide for you when you reach retirement. No, the goal is for them to have eternal life. The goal is for your child to have unparalleled love for Jesus Christ, that they would have joy, their joy would be full, that they would have meaning in life. It would be for them to walk with our Lord. That is your primary goal in parenting your child. How different would our days look? How different would our interactions with our children look? If that is truly always at the forefront of our minds, then my goal is not to just see behavior modification or compliance to what I want in this moment, but for your heart to be gripped by a risen king, for you to be so enthralled with this gospel that it's all you can think about. And so the way that you see everything is through this lens of I am loved by God. I am beloved. Do you want that for your child? I so hope you do. And I would ask you, like, do the uncomfortable work of looking at what are you actually investing in when it comes to your children? And like most investing, look at where your time goes. Look at where your money goes. Like, if eternal life is at stake for your child, and that is what you are called to, is to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, that is your calling for your child. What are you investing in for them? Are the things that you're investing in for them aligned to that calling? Let's shift if need be, but see that that is our calling for them. And so um, to, to conclude this, this portion here on, on parenting, I, I want to offer two principles, and, and I want to offer these um, with full transparency that I am not an awesome parent. I am learning this with everyone else. And so I don't want you to think that I have all the answers, um, but there are some things that I've learned largely the hard way, and I want to share those. Um, I'll boil it down to just two for now. Um, the first one, consistency is crucial. If you want to raise your child up in the training and instruction of the Lord, consistency is crucial. And you apply this to everything that you come across in parenting. Consistency is crucial. Um, Proverbs 13, 24. In light of the fact that I don't have to teach my kids how to steal to lie, to hurt others, those kinds of things, that's just, it's in them. We have inherited the sinful nature, and so I'm having to do this, what it says. I'm having to raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That means I'm gonna have to do a lot of correcting. And in that correcting, also known as discipline, it needs to be consistent. Proverbs 13, 24 says, the one who will not use the rod hates his son, but the one who loves him disciplines him diligently. There's a consistency to this. If you do not discipline your child, you hate your child. You don't love your child. We must discipline our children. Just like the author of Hebrews says, our Father in heaven disciplines us, but he does that in love. Because he loves us, he corrects us. And so we must correct our children. Your children do not need another friend. They need a mother and a father. Be their mother, be their father. And that does not mean you can't have fun with them. That does not mean you can't have beautiful, just, just glorious conversations and relationships with them. But they need you to be mom or dad. So be that and be consistent in that. Have boundaries. And be consistent in those boundaries. If you start the game, and I might step on some toes, please know I love you. 
I love you so much. But here's, like, I, 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 this dawned on me before I was a parent, when I was a teacher, and I would walk into other teachers' rooms, and I'd hear, I'm going to count to 10, and when I get to 10, if it's not quiet, one, two, three, I'm speeding up, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine and a half, nine and three quarters, nine and seven eighths, like, 10, all right, that's it. Like, no, 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 at one, just at one. In fact, don't count. Just be consistent with it. This is what I expect. Because it's, this is classical conditioning in psychological terms. If you start counting, you know what you're teaching them? Everything's okay until we get to 10. It's totally fine until we get to that number. No. <laughs> so mean what you say. We need more of that in the gospel moments. <laughs> so here, be consistent. Have consistent expectations. If you say, when we get home, you're getting whatever this consequence is, you declare, you better mean that. Because I promise you, they're smart enough to call you on it. They will learn. So when you say, this is the punishment, that better be the punishment, or there better be an apology to say, I said that out of anger, and I'm sorry. I did not mean that. Actually, the consequence is this. And you grow with them. And in that, that's one of the most important things we can do as parents is to confess to our kids when we mess up. When they know that we are broken sinners too and we're just as reliant on our Savior for forgiveness, for grace, for the mercy that he extends. That speaks volumes to them. That is one of the most beautiful ways that you will raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord is to show them, I too am a broken sinner, but I'm putting my faith in him. And so I'm sorry, daddy should not have said that. Will you forgive me? I'm just so thankful that my Father in heaven has forgiven me. And he says, when I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And so we do this with consistency. Okay, so that's, that's the first principle. The other principle that I'd like to point out, um, if any of you have met with me for any level of counseling, you've probably heard me say this, proper expectations reduces frustration. This is every arena of life, but so, so much in our children, uh, just the parenting dynamic there. Proper expectations reduces frustrations. This goes both ways, your frustrations and theirs. If you know what to expect and they know what to expect, frustration all around goes down. So you can be angry. Uh, let me just be honest with you. This past week, you know, we're gearing up for the the big event downtown, um, Light Up Claremont, almost lost the name there. I thought about it way too much. Um, Light Up Claremont, and so the office is kind of a whirlwind of there's different things. It's getting decorated. There's like storage, um, little piles, we'll just call them piles of stuff, kind of gearing up for this. And so uh, at a meeting in the evening one night, and Jessica has already gone, and, and she's been telling me about how we were going to give out glow bracelets or necklaces, and those are really hard to come by, apparently. And so like, this has been a multiple county endeavor of going to all the different stores that sell these things, trying to acquire as many red and green um, necklaces as possible. So I know the work that has gone into just putting together this stockpile of these glow necklaces, and they're sitting there in a corner, and I have to bring, I get my, my daughter from school that day because my wife and son are on a field trip, and so I get her, and I bring her back, I'm going to have another meeting, and like within minutes of being there, all of a sudden, she comes running around. She's got three of them, and they're already broke. So they're lit up. And it's like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And, and I just unload. I'm like, that's three kids that are not going to have a necklace Friday night. 
Why, why would you touch that? You know you don't touch things that don't belong to you. And I'm just going off. And all the tears start. And I was like, <laughs> you know what I'm doing? I'm forgetting to have proper expectations. There's a five-year-old girl and a pile of glow sticks sitting right there by her. What do I expect? Should I be angry? No. And so I have to take a moment and calm down and realize proper expectations reduces frustration. Same thing for them. I, this, this started the grocery shopping. Kroger, thank you, God, for Kroger. Delivering groceries. But man, we used to go to the grocery store, and do you know what that is like with children? It's so sanctifying. Or maybe not, I don't know. But we go in. Yeah, they can borrow ours, yes. You're welcome to have a turn. Uh, but you, know, you go into the grocery store, you put them in the grocery cart, and you walk in, and what do they want immediately? The free cookie. The free cookie. And there's two ways to view this. The first way is it's going to occupy them. I did that one time and realized that occupied them for less than 60 seconds. And then they're jacked up on sugar. And this is not going well. And they're touching everything and all this stuff. So we made a simple change that instead of giving them the cookie at the start, before we get out of the vehicle, I say, hey, guys, you want a cookie when you go in there? <laughs> Here's the deal. Keep your hands to yourself. Obey me at all times. And you be good in there, and at the end of it, I'll get you that cookie. And we go in. It's a totally different experience. Why? Because proper expectations reduces frustration. They know what to expect. I know what to expect, and we go into it. So proper expectations reduces frustration. Tempering your anger as you discipline your child is part of you not stirring up anger in them. It was weird. He started with, fathers, do not stir up anger in your child. I'm a dad. I know. It's just like in us, this kind of like fun, like you can poke and like you, you're watching sadly because like, that's me, that's me. And you know just how to poke. Like, don't do that. Don't stir up anger. But one of the main ways we do that is in our anger. We can stir up anger in them because we should never discipline out of anger. If you were angry when you were disciplining your child, walk away. It actually does wonders for them too. Because it's way worse. The anticipation is way worse than the actual <laughs> implementation. Like, no, 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 tell me now. I told you we'll talk when we go home. No, 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 tell me now. And you're like, no. But you might need to walk away and come back to discipline when you are not disciplining out of anger. You don't want to stir up anger in your child. Another major way that we often overlook that you stir up anger in your child is not the way that you discipline them or the way you interact with them. It's actually your absence. An absent father will create a very angry child. Be present in your kid's life. Be present predictably that they know you were consistent because consistency is crucial. You're going to show up. And if you're not there, they know it's not normal. Show up predictably, but then show up randomly. Leave the note in their lunchbox or in their backpack. They're just out of nowhere. Dad's never done that. Show them in random ways that you're there and you care about them. Be present. All right. If you were always harsh, if you were always insensitive, like I was the other day at the office, guess what they become? Harsh and insensitive. They become angry. So let's keep going, running out of time. Um, verse five. So we have covered parents and children, but we're still in the same theme of submission, walking wisely in the spirit. So verse five, slaves, uh-oh, <laughs> let's talk about slaves. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. That's wild. 
God's very word, inspired by God the Spirit himself, says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. I want you to, again, keep that in mind, slave or free. So this is not just for slaves. Slave or free, he'll receive that back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. First off, slavery in this context is not what we tend to think of as slavery. Um, In our American history, um, we think of chattel slavery. We think of um, people taken against their will, kidnapped, taken from continent to continent, largely based on the color of their skin, things like that. That is absolutely atrocious. It's evil. We must repent. We must still deal with the ramifications of that. That is not the kind of slavery that this is talking about. There are some similarities, but this type of slavery is not based on skin color. 2,000 years ago, in the ancient world, slavery was not based on skin color. You could be any ethnicity and become a slave. It was actually something that most of them opted into. They willingly entered into slavery to manage a debt load that they could not handle or to provide sustenance that there was no other way that they were going to eat and it would be better to become a slave. But that often meant that there were contracts. There were terms in that contract. Here's the length of time. Here's what's required of you. Things like that that would protect them. Slaves were permitted to be as educated as they wanted to be and were able to be. Slaves were still viewed as persons and not just property. Um, The law gave provisions to protect slaves, and, and this actually what it did was it eliminated the evils that came with the institution of slavery. Um, that is still something we have to wrestle with, though, because there's still this tension in this of someone is owning someone else. Even if that person came in voluntarily, and it's fully safe. It's just weird, and it should bother you that someone is owning someone else. And I need for you to understand that and accept that, embrace that, because that is biblical, even though this might on the surface seem to fly in the face of it. The way of Christianity is to change individuals and see them influence society, not change society and see society influence individuals. And so what Paul is doing here is very strategic. He's not addressing whether slavery is right or wrong. He doesn't say whether it's right or wrong in this. Instead, what he does is he addresses those that are part of an existing system. And so submission and obedience are going to be reiterated for this relationship like you would to Christ. But what he's doing here is he's beautifully showing that this is how we can do this, regardless of our circumstance. You feel uncomfortable when someone is over you. You feel uncomfortable when you're over someone. Both sides should feel some discomfort there and should realize there's a different way that we should relate to each other. And so as he does this, it's as you would Christ. So whatever good that is done is to be received back from the Lord. Remember, that's for the slave or the free. So you're on equal grounds. What you do is as you would do it to the Lord. Both of you are going to hear back for what you have done. Both of you will give an account for what you have done. So what do you do? What does this mean? It means the slave can live. We talked about this in a prior series. But the slave should live in light of the gospel that I have been freed by God. It was for freedom that Christ set me free. And now the slave can live being in debt and just required obedience to a slave master. That slave can live in such a way that there's such 
deep joy and willingness to work as to the Lord that the slave master would look at the slave and say, you're the one who's free here. And so, again, translate, this isn't just slaves and masters. In any dynamic, employer, employee, can you work and can you live in such a way that the person over you would look at you and say, oh, you're free. That's what freedom looks like. Even if all the circumstances that we usually would point to and say, like, no, you're a slave. And yet someone would look at you and say, that's freedom. Look at that. That's freedom. Being in godly submission is actually where we find real freedom. It's within the proper restraints that we find real freedom. Um, Timothy Keller um, often talks about a fish out of water. You know, the fish can live its life underwater and think, man, if only I could get out of here. I could just go up there where I see those bright lights. If I could just follow those things that swim and then crawl up on the land, I'd know real freedom. And then what happens the moment you take that fish out of water? It dies, or it starts to die. It suffers. Because real freedom for the fish is to be within the confines which it was created to be under, to be in the water. And we're all the same way. Real freedom is not the absence of restraint. Real freedom is living within the proper restraints. And so we can find real freedom here. And the masters are addressed to treat slaves in such a way that all the evils of slavery are eliminated. If you've ever read the book of Philemon, a um, tiny little letter that Paul writes um, to, to a slave owner regarding a runaway slave. This, this runaway slave is a Christian. He's a brother in Christ. The slave owner, the master, is also a Christian. And Paul is talking to both of them saying, he is a runaway. He shouldn't have done that. He owed you a debt. I'm sending him back to you. But as I send him back to you, he goes through and he basically says, I implore you, treat him as a brother. That Paul is systematically in a world that is full of slavery at this point. He undermines the very institution itself by destroying all the evils within it. And there's such profound wisdom in that. If you think that you're going to change the world by just changing policy and all this stuff, how many times are we going to try that? But if instead you can take away the evils of it, seeing personal change, and then you watch that bleed out and this overflow, and suddenly massive societal things can change. And this is the beauty of this. So masters, treat your slaves like brothers and sisters. You're no higher than them. So getting practical in today's workforce. Employees, you render services due to your employer, and you should do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. Laziness and shoddy work are not acceptable in the way of Jesus. Work hard. Rest well, but work hard. And work as though you are working to the Lord, because you are. So whatever you do, you clean things, you build things, you talk to things, whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. You do it well so that your employer says, you're a remarkable employee. I'm so glad to have you. That's awesome. You, you experience such joy and excellence in this, and it's a blessing to me. I'm inspired by watching you. And then employers, you get to exercise authority over others, do so in accord with the way of our Lord, who served us by leading us, who's gracious, who's merciful. But you do that in such a way that you're doing it to the glory of God because he is over you, even when you were over others. So harshness and injustice are simply not acceptable. Be the most loving and just person of authority over others that you can be and do that to the glory of God. 
Because the bottom line is the way we relate to others is tied to the way that we relate to Christ. If you want to know how can I relate to others, whether they're in authority over me or under me, how do you relate to Jesus? Jesus, the one who was God himself from eternity past, God the Son, sent from God the Father, so that he could take on humanity to step into his own creation, the mess that we had made, to make things right again. Humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The way of Jesus, this good news, is to love. And in loving, he would lay his life down. Church, he loves you like that. And when you see the way that he does that, it is grace. You didn't deserve his love. He gave it when you had no merit. If he relates to you like that, then we ought to relate to others like that. Grace should mark us. One of my favorite bands, this is not kosher, by the way, heads up, is called The National. And one of my favorite songs they sing is called Graceless. And he's, he's wrote this song, it's very artsy, and so we don't know exactly, but it seems to be a time in his life when he was struggling and relating to others. And he writes a song called Graceless. I'm gonna read the lyrics because I can't sing, but, and you don't want that to happen. That would be really graceless. Um, it says, I'm trying, but I'm graceless. I don't have the sunny side to face this. I'm invisible and weightless. You can't imagine how I hate this. Graceless. I'm trying, but I'm gone. Through the glass again. Just come and find me. God loves everybody. Don't remind me. That line. God loves everybody. Don't remind me. As it comes from this place of, of seeming defeat and just struggling to have grace for how he relates to anybody. It says, God loves everybody. Don't remind me. Sometimes it can be so hard to hear the way that God relates to us, that he really loves us when we don't deserve to be loved. He calls us his beloved and he makes us lovely. And he does that by showing us love that God's love was revealed among us in this way. He sent his son that we would have eternal life. That there's a God who loves us like that, that he would lay his life down for us, taking all of our due penalty on himself, loving us. What a God that is. And if that's the God who loves me and I don't want to love others, then don't remind me of the love of that God. But if I see the love of that God, the way that he loves me is in grace, then now I have grace to relate to you. And so every relationship in your life, what should it be marked by? Grace. That I am defined by the vertical love of God to me and it overflows in this horizontal love to all. Can we do that, church? And that is at the heart of who we are, is beloved. We are the beloved of God and that means we're gonna love each other and we're gonna love others. So we do that, seeing his grace, the way that he relates to me. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling or doubting saint, will you believe this good news? Will you believe it today? Will you trust him? Will you believe he died for you and he rose again and he's offering you eternal life to be with him forevermore? You confess him as Lord. Declare it. And then let's baptize you and profess that to the world. And let's display. And follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? And I'll do that. Will you pray with me? God, you are amazing. 
Your love is beyond comprehension, but we want to know more of it. And so as we think about the way that we raise our children who are under our authority, or we think about the way that we're under the authority of others or in authority over others, I got in all these dynamics where, where we get so, just so much angst. We get so fearful and our insecurities rise up. God, we pray, I pray that you would remind us of the way that you view us because you're overall, and yet you love us and you submitted to serving us. We love you. I praise you in Jesus' name.